you would take your Bibles and turn not with me to Matthew chapter 21, but instead rather to Ephesians chapter 4. I thought this would be an appropriate time. We're at the conclusion of chapter 20. We're about to go in with Jesus to Jerusalem on his last week. But at the same time, we had a baptism this morning, and it was an appropriate time to come right off of the heels of Matthew 20, looking at what is greatness, and greatness has to do with serving. And serving will take suffering. And then we are to search our own hearts and the darkness thereof to make sure that we are living according to the calling which we have been called. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, this is almost where we began our day in the baptism service this morning and worthy to reconsider those things. Oh, I need a sermon. Yeah. If you would now open your hearts to the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Our gracious Father, open our eyes with your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text that you have given us many years ago through the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus, which is for the church of heritage this day. And we pray that the Spirit of God would so glorify the Savior in our own hearts and lives to see this new creation that you have created in Him, and so glorify the Father in heaven which has decreed all these things so that through the church uh, you would be glorified in the power of the Holy Spirit through our Savior, the one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so we ask that this time would be a fruitful time for your people and for your church. Most of all, our Heavenly Father, we pray it would be a fruitful time to glorify yourself through Christ in his empowered church forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In a day when this world has been dealing with a global pandemic, if you can even call it that, the church itself has been dealing with a great spiritual true pandemic of epic proportions. And we call this spiritual pandemic division. So why is it that Christians have such a difficult time getting along with one another? Well, there's a number of reasons for that, but it all is rooted in pride. Pride is the chief enemy here, and pride is this self-keeping and this self-centeredness, this self-focus that, that closes our minds to 
to the Spirit of God even working through other people, except for that which might achieve our own personal interest, see? It keeps us from listening, it keeps us from being teachable, and eventually it leads us to many other deceptions that we will believe as true, but are not. The divisions in the church today are rampant. We have divisions over the things of the cultural things of the world. We have divisions over mandates, divisions over vaccines, divisions over critical race theory, divisions over politics, divisions over the budget. We also have denominational divisions within the church, and divisions over secondary issues. We have theological divisions within the church, which sides are drawn up. And then there are hostile societies within the church, which is really the root of heresy. Heresy really means division. It's not just a doctrinal aberration, but it's a division within the church that has a hostile group that rises against the unity of the whole. But we also have a lot of divisions that are caused by personal conflict. Personal things, personality issues, social cliques in which we do not want others to come and disturb. Divisions are caused by neglecting to get that little sin issue addressed in your relationship, and yet when you fail to do that and you don't pursue the peace, you allow Satan to get his foot in the door. And then a little thing becomes a big thing. Relationships are broken. And when a single relationship is broken within the church between just two people, that is the start of division within the whole body. This morning I want to preach to you on the first and the foremost priority in fulfilling your Christian calling. It is your responsibility and your constant activity as a Christian It is the responsibility that is identified in our baptism and is constantly before us every Lord's Day at the table before us. And for that reason, I've entitled the message this morning, Fulfilling Our Sacramental Calling. It really has to do with our entire Christian calling, which is identified in the sacraments. And on this special day, when we've baptized another into the church of Jesus Christ, we have all been called once again to remember our baptisms. In many churches, we're called to improve upon our baptisms. And I don't know if you're, uh, you don't like that language or not, so it is from our confession from the larger catechism. And so I've, I've put that on the back of your liturgy here for you to consider uh, in the course of the day. Uh, What does it mean to improve upon our baptisms? But it has a responsibility that we all have to take heed to. When one is baptized, like this morning, we all participate in that baptism. And that baptism is a means of grace not only for the child being baptized, but as we improve and are called to remember our own baptisms, it becomes a means of grace to us as well. And so our baptisms will be a means of grace for the rest of our earthly lives here. So we are called to improve 
on our own baptisms and to fill our baptism vows, to refresh those vows of old. And yet we also take vows to help one another and to help the one who's baptized, to help the parents to raise those up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But our relationship with Christ and with one another are ratified by these vows. It's just like the wedding that we celebrated a couple days ago. The bride and the groom come forward, Christ and His church, yeah? And, and they, they take vows together and they enter into this beautiful relationship where the two become one flesh. I speak to you of a mystery, but I speak to you of Christ and the church. And as these vows are made before the face of God, even God has taken an oath and He could swear by none greater, so He swore by Himself so that by these two immutable things we might have confidence and know that God neither lies and He is faithful to keep His covenant vows and therefore enjoins us to be in that one and the same. And so vows are very serious. They are not to be broken. Ecclesiastes says better not to take a vow than to take it and not fulfill it. Good intentions at the start of the vow taking does not then mean the fulfillment of those vows. You have to fulfill them. So that comes with a great responsibility and yet great blessings as we're faithful in the fulfillment of those vows and yet judgment and chastisement when we are unfaithful to fulfill those vows. And the sacraments keep these matters ever before us, constantly reminding us of our baptism vows that we have with our Lord and Savior, our great husband. And as we consider our fulfilling of the sacramental calling, in other words, all that salvation entails, and all that we have been called to this morning, I want us to consider a few principles. Baptism is what joins us to the church. And that is why it is included in all of the ones of verses 4 through 6. There is one baptism in the midst of this list of one body, that's the church, of which Paul has been speaking of for three solid chapters and exclusively teaching us of the body of Christ, the church. There is one spirit. There is one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father. And so baptism is grouped along with all of these ones, this list of very important things that identify who we are in the body, in Christ, with the Father, in the one hope and the one faith of our calling. Baptism in the New Covenant is the complement to the Old Covenant sign of circumcision. In fact, so closely is baptism and circumcision related that Paul speaks in Colossians 2, verses 11-13, through 13, and when he uses those terms, he uses them almost interchangeably as he identifies the same spiritual truths with each of those sacramental signs. Both circumcision of the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant 
our initiation or initiatory rights into the covenant and into the covenant community, whether that be Israel or the church. Both identify you with the redemptive work of God through Christ in the Spirit that must be received by faith. Both of them identify you as one who has been separated out of the world and set apart unto God for holy purposes. Both covenantally bind you to the society of God's people, the church, and identify the baptized, or in the old covenant, the circumcised, with the new family. And we saw from the Old Covenant that one could not participate in the Passover meal, and I would say by extension any of the Sabbath feast meal, or any of the blessings of the covenant that the society of God's people on this earth had, unless he was first circumcised. Circumcision is the initiatory right into the covenant and into the society of God's people. Now I should note here, the importance of the teaching of covenant household. And it's beyond the scope to get into this, but I know that some of you may be thinking about it, so I'm going to lightly touch on this. But the females, such as daughters and wives, were allowed to partake of the feast of the Old Covenant because they were covered under the headship of their father or husband's circumcision. And so there is a correlation here in the role and identity of the women of the household to their circumcised or uncircumcised husband-father as it relates to the covenant and to the identity within the society of the people, the church. Now, once circumcised, the member could participate in the Passover along with the rest of the covenant community as long as they were not disqualified from partaking. And that was true of all of the Israelites. There were a number of reasons why one could be disqualified, either temporarily or permanently. And those matters were determined by the priests who oversaw the fidelity of a member's circumcision. Are they living in fidelity to what the circumcision identifies regarding the covenant? Likewise today, one cannot eat of the Lord's Supper unless he has first been baptized. Then he or she can come to the table as long as they have not been disqualified, either temporarily or permanently, by the government of the church, which oversees the fidelity of that member's Baptism. And what I mean by the fidelity of a member's baptism means are they living faithfully to the covenant of which they gave their vows before God and in the church that they are living faithfully to the gospel, the gospel life. Baptism in this new covenant era is the right whereby you are joined to the church You are identified with God's holy people and the promises of the gospel uh, fullness are then given to you. All of the gospel promises are now upon honor. And He's called to believe them. 
And he has a very special place being set apart as children of believers and now brought forth with the baptism. That becomes a means of grace in his life. It's a very special and mysterious aspect in which we have in the sacraments to the extent that the Bible itself calls the sacraments mysteries. And when we are baptized, we are called then to walk in newness of life. And we referenced even that from the Romans 6 passage as we were buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It is identifying our union with Christ so that, again, in a mysterious way, when Christ died upon the cross by virtue of our union with Him, we died with Him. And when He raised from the dead on the third day, by virtue of our union with Christ, we were raised with Him to walk in newness of life. And it is only by virtue of our union with Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. All of that is identified there in this sacrament. So our baptism identifies us with our union with Christ in His church and with our calling as a Christian. And what does that calling entail? And that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 1. As we've considered the few points on baptism, let's now consider what that baptism calls us to. And as we see in our beginning of the text in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The calling here in which Paul is referring to is not the special vocation of ministry. It's not your career in that sense of your secular work, if I can use that in this context. It's the calling that every Christian has. It's your elective calling of God through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Which means that every one of you who are in Christ have this calling. And Paul is saying, now fulfill this calling. This is your salvation and your salvation marching orders. And verse 1 is exhorting us to live the life that He has called us to. And walk worthy of that calling with the way that you live your life. And this calling is what your baptism identifies, it's what it symbolizes, and that is our responsibility. So God has a plan for us. He has a plan for you. He has saved us with a very specific salvation calling. And you have a specific salvation calling to fulfill. There is a life that God has planned for you and for me in which He has saved us too. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And we now obey God the Father in Christ. And we have a very special purpose. And He wants us to know what that purpose is. I'll give a little bit of the context in which this verse comes in because I started off with an application 
assuming a particular teaching that Paul had gone on with for three whole chapters with almost no application. For some of you, this is a bit of a review, but it still should be fresh upon our hearts and minds because it is part of who we are, apart from which you will not have a clear identity. We just began the portion of this epistle that is this application portion. And Paul informs us regarding the church. That's what this entire epistle is about. It's the doctrine and the application of you, the church. And he taught for three chapters some very deep and rich teachings there. And he taught that the church is a tremendous work of God that that he actually kept concealed through all of the ages until Christ came, he appeared, and he was crucified, and he was risen on the third day, ascended back on high, sent the Spirit of God, and now something new has happened. That's why in Ephesians 3, he calls it created in Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of the new creation, of the new heavens and earth, of which Jesus is the first fruits. It's the church which is called the mystery. Not a mystery like a, a whodunit kind of mystery, but something that was previously hidden that has now been revealed. And now we need to understand because God has informed us what this is. And knowing what this mystery is and its purpose is essential for you to understand what you are about and how to fulfill your calling. Without some understanding in this area, you will have a bit of an identity crisis. Ephesians 3, backing up a bit, get a running start into this chapter. In verse 3, Paul was specifically chosen as an apostle specifically to reveal this mystery. Apostle Paul had a very special ministry here. And the mystery is the mystery of the church. And that's the purpose of this entire epistle. In verse 9, Paul says that it is God's intention now that all men will see this great mystery now revealed and what is the fellowship, this participation, this sharing in this mystery and what that entails. You are a participant and a sharing and a partaker of this great mystery. And the world is watching. All of the world is watching. The world is focused. And verse 9 goes on to show it's not only the world that is around us that's watching, but he says there in chapter 3, Verse 10, it is to the intent, the purpose of God, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. It's almost a climactic part of this epistle. The world is watching, but Millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of the unfallen 
angelic world are watching the church, learning of the variegated wisdom of God. Why? To bring Him glory. And they look at the church and they marvel at what God is doing with the people down here. As we look out into the heavens and we marvel at the heavens which declare the glory of God, the angels are looking down at the church and they are marveling at the glory of God and what He has done here in you. And they glorify God. That's part of the very purpose of the mystery of the church. It's part of your calling as a participant in the church is to draw attention to God. It is something that is larger than yourself and bigger than your objectives. This is far reaching beyond anything that you can comprehend any of the dimensions of, which is where he closes in chapter 3. He wants you to learn a little bit more, but you'll never comprehend the vastness. Because this is something even of angelic marvel. Creatures that are smarter than we are, bigger than we are, stronger than we are. And they've been around a long time. And so this is what God the Father is working through Christ in His Spirit-empowered church. He's bringing glory to Himself forever. And that's how chapter 3 ends. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations and even forever and ever. Amen. That's what He's doing here. And you're a part of that. You're a part of your Christian calling has to do with the angels. It's something you do not see and something you would never be aware of nor know unless God Himself told you. You're always being watched. You're being watched when you're at home all by yourself. You're being watched when you're in the body of Christ. You're being watched when you're out in the world. And you're either living to enhance and draw attention to the glory of God, or you're detracting from that purpose and intent. And what He's called you to is something supernatural that you cannot fulfill in your flesh. And you can't even try it. You will utterly fail. He tells you, Bert, and He tells you, Daniel, and He tells you, Pierce, this is part of your calling. You can't do it. It is impossible with man, but not with God, because I've called you to do it, and I'm giving you the grace to do it. But you better rely upon God for His grace. You better be on your knees in prayer to be strengthened. In the Word, hearing and learning. And hearing the voice of God. Enjoining 
with the church around the sacraments and the preaching in times like this. That's the only way you're going to get the power, but so much as He wants you to know that you've got this very power in you already, that He reiterates this over with six words that talk about this power and this energy that has been given to you in chapter 1 through 18 and 19. He says this energy, this dynamos, this megathos, this energeo, this, and he goes on with six terms so that you might know every kind of a power is available to you to do exactly what he's called you to do. It is the same power that raised up Christ from the dead and now empowers you to fulfill your calling. But you're not going to do it without it. Because let's face it, guys. We're made a little lower than the angels. And there's not going to be anything of angelic marvel that we will ever be able to accomplish. I mean, we're being observed by unfallen, powerful creatures. And God is drawing glory to Himself by what He's doing through Christ in the church. And it needs to be something that will bring marvel and awe to the angelic beings so they will glorify God in heaven. And the first and foremost aspect of your Christian calling, identified in your baptism, and continue to be refreshed at the table, Every Lord's Day is found in verse 3 of our text. It is endeavoring to keep the unity in the Spirit. It goes on further in this passage where he talks about the unity of the faith. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on for the first 16 chapters in this, speaking about that particular issue. This is your first and your foremost responsibility in fulfilling your calling. And the prerequisites for you to even begin to begin to do that are found in verse 2. As you are to walk worthy with all lowliness, as humility, and gentleness, with all long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. By the time he gets to the end of this particular section, he's talking about how we grow up into each other in the bond of love and how love begins to, to foster this great unity. But to live with that kind of character and to be able to fulfill your calling, you have better be on your knees and deep, rich prayer with your Savior. And in corporate worship, with your hearts open, a genuine humility is always a work of God's grace, but is essential to this unity, and that unity is what you have been called to fulfill. 
Now this unity of the Spirit, the unity of the faith, which would later speak of, is not merely an intellectual agreement of what the gospel is, but it's a fellowship with one another in the gospel life. And the gospel life is a holy life that is separated out of the world, identified by our baptism. And Paul will take from chapter 4, verse 17 through 5.17 to point out the many contrasts in the way that we are now different from the world, in the way we ought to live in separation from the world. And so if you go through your Bibles and you mark from chapter 4, verse 17 to 5.17, mark all of those little prepositions, but. Because you're going to see the way the world lives, which is the way you used to be. But you are not to live that way any longer. And we all come together and we're unified in this holy living so that it addresses every contrary way in this epistle. Our language is different. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let him that steals steal no more, but let him work with his hands in order to give to those who are in need. Over and over it talks about a contrasting way of life. It speaks to our language, to our lifestyle, to our work ethic, to our truthfulness, to our anger, and to even the way of our spirit and the way we respond one to another. And we are called to be unified together in this holy walk. And one of the key ways that we live differently from the world in our unity is this unity. And this unity will cause the angels to marvel. To marvel at our Creator and their Creator. You know, we call on the angels. We speak to the angels. In a little bit, you're going to be asking the angels to join us. Yeah? The angels, the unfallen angels, do not know of the grace of God in the way that we know it. They never had to be redeemed with the blood of the Savior in the way that we have been redeemed. Not been touched with his sins, and, and yet their place is to learn of the variegated wisdom of God by watching us so that they too will marvel. By the way, there's biblical precedence for us talking to angels as you come to the end of chapter, or the end of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, you his angels, and all you who did it. Bless the Lord, right? And you're blessing the Lord, oh my soul, and you enjoying the angels and you call them into the praise of the wonderful glory of God's grace. And they marvel. And by the grace of God, we must endeavor to keep the unity of this gospel life together. We all come from various backgrounds. We all have different variations in how we perceive and what we were trained in. And 
our theological backgrounds. We have personalities that are quite different one with another, and sometimes those get into conflict. We have different ways of interpreting life and seeing life, and sometimes those get into conflict. There's an, but in spite of all those variations, we are to endeavor to walk in the unity of the faith together, and that is our first and foremost priority in fulfilling our calling. The angels have been watching human history for 6,000 years. They have seen it all. They have seen and known human behavior. They have seen self-seeking, jealousies, envy that goes to murder, selfishness with their time and resources. And they know all of this. They've seen all of this. They were there watching in the time before Noah of the depravity of the human heart, which was only set on wickedness. They were there when they saw the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities of the valley, which God destroyed. And now they see, all of a sudden, something new. Out of the same lot of humanity, they see a people serving one another, sacrificially so. And they see them loving one another. And they marvel, not at what you have done, but what God is doing by grace in your lives, making you to be what He has called you to be, and so giving you the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling His plan that He had put in course from all of eternity, now revealed, and now angels marvel. Angels marvel. They have not seen that before. We are called to draw attention to God. As we live out our faith here in the context of one another, in the context of all of this difference in backgrounds and personalities and conflict. And that's what our baptism represents. It identifies the oneness mentioned in this passage with the unity that we are to fulfill. The sacraments are signs and seals that God has given to mark the church out of the world, to put a contrast between us and them as a unified people identified with these sacraments. These sacraments, of course, identify us with our union with Christ. But they have responsibilities that they often call us to. Yes? associated with those baptisms is to fulfill those baptismal vows. It requires you to live out the very essence of what these sacraments are. The sacraments should never be used with Christians, with faithful Christians, as a means of division because they are actually emblems of our unity. We have to embrace the essence of the sacrament in faith to comprehend the entirety of the grace that therein is. So what I mean this morning by the title of the morning's sermon is when I say fulfill your sacramental calling. First, it is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.
Because we will either contribute to the glory of God or detract from it in the way that we live. If you personally are not in a relational unity and at peace with every other member of heritage, you are detracting from the glory of God and not fulfilling your purpose. You're not walking worthy of your elective calling in Christ. See, it's going to take a supernatural work of God in the Spirit to bring this about, but this is God's plan. And that's why we've been given so many instructions from Matthew 18 and Galatians 6.1 and, and how we've been given all these instructions through all the Scripture to make sure to work all these things out and these conflicts among ourselves because it is a means of which God is bringing glory to Himself through Christ in the church for ever. And the devil and one-third of those created beings that fell from their original state are doing everything they can to attack and destroy our unity. And that's why Paul closes in that last section of this very epistle on spiritual warfare. Satan and his enemies will be attacking every one of your relationships. And that's why Paul puts an emphasis on those relationships beginning at 5, chapter 5, verse 18. He's going to be attacking your marriage. He's going to be attacking your children. He's going to be attacking that parental relationship that you have. That employer relationship, that one anothering among the church body relationship, he's going to be attacking everything that is after the cause. He didn't care about you, he cares about the cause. If he can destroy the unity in the body, and he's detracting from the glory of God. And that's what he wants to do, and that's why we have to ever be putting on the armor of God daily, and we enter into this battle so that we can glorify God and not be defeated in order to be detracting. Have you ever noticed how a Christian can say something kind of off the cuff on a day like this, perhaps when we're all lined up for, for lunch, or when we're out there fellowshipping around a cup of coffee, and and just say something kind of spontaneous. Be a little insensitive and it perhaps bothers another brother here. And for the next six months, that comment that will go around and around in the believer's mind until finally six months, twelve months down the road, it'll just erupt between the two Christians the one has completely forgotten what he ever said. The question is, how do you explain that? And the Bible explains that those things are satanically energized. And they are replayed over and over again to the memory. That those kinds of things are the things that the enemy takes advantage of to breed disunity in the body because your guard was let down. Your shield was let down. 
As we baptize another member and remember our own baptisms to improve them, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's our our first charge. It's not our only charge, but it's our first charge. So that the angels will marvel and God will be glorified through Christ in His empowered church. That's what your baptism calls you to today. To faithfully live this out. There should be no divisions among us. There should not be any personal contentions with any two people that continue to go on and on because that's what the blessedness of the Gospel is about. That is why Jesus gave us His instructions. That's why Jesus died. That's why He was resurrected. That's what this whole salvific body is about. Scripture calls division in the body a cancer, a gangrene that will continue to grow to affect the entire body. The gospel life is not a proud, perfectly performed life. You hear me, parents? The gospel life is not a proud, perfectly performed performed life. Sometimes you expect more out of your children than you can produce yourself. And you want your children to live this way so that you can actually look kind of good in the face of the other Christian society. Absolutely, that is proud performance. No, the heart of the Gospel life is acknowledging that we are sinners and to humbly repent and to live a repentant life of faith that is blessed by constant forgiveness. And that's what Psalm 32 is all about. When you hold your sin in, your your bones ache, they grow old, you die inside. But then I admitted my sin. I confessed my sin unto the Lord, and He forgave me of my iniquities, and the joy returns to me. Live gospel lives, people. Live gospel lives. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? God, will you forgive me? Boom. It's over. There's nothing the devil will do. He can't touch that. He can't touch that. Performance life? He will destroy you. He will destroy you. And that's how the church stays unified. It's living a humble, repentant life of faith that is blessed with constant forgiveness. And this will succeed. This will succeed. It will succeed in the faithful church because this is the plan of God. This is empowered by God. This is what the gospel does. This is the whole whole reason for it. And what God has purposed, He will complete. What He has started, He will finish. What He has decreed, it will come to pass. What He has promised, He will be faithful to bring it to pass. So let's each do our part to endeavor to keep the unity, the faith, and the bond of love. He has given us the power He's given us the ability. And this is why Christ paid such a high price of suffering and death on the cross in perfect obedience to the Father's will. Even He wanted to glorify the Father by creating this new creation that will glorify Him forever.
So remember your baptisms today. And seek peace with all people and holiness apart from which you will not see the kingdom of God. So today, if you have ought against your brother or holding some bitterness in your life or having some kind of proud performance image that you have to protect, you just need to let all of that go and go get it right with your brother, get it right with God. Humble yourself and endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. Christ will bring it to pass. And you will be so richly blessed and enjoy the glory that He Himself is enjoying now. Because when He comes back, you will be found with Him in this glory. Our gracious Father, bring it to pass, we pray, at heritage. And glorify Your name through Christ in heritage forever and ever. How thankful we are that that which You have promised You will fulfill. We thank You for the power of the Gospel. We thank You for working in our lives and our hearts. And we pray that Your Spirit would convict us where we're falling short, where we've held on to things, where we've grown bitter in our hearts, where we have been sure that we have been right in our pride. And so we will not go and get things right with our brother. Whatever the case, whatever the application may be to us specifically, we pray the Spirit of God would now burn in our conscience, in our heart, because we have been faulty and not endeavoring to keep the spirit of unity and the bond of love. This is our first part of our calling to walk worthy of. Lord, we pray that You would continue to unify this body and continue to give peace and that we can see the beautiful attributes of this community pulling together like we have beheld this past week. And we pray that You would help us to be faithful, to root out the bitterness in our own hearts and to root it out of this congregation. May we be faithful. May we enjoy the blessings of Christ as He so glorifies the Father. And as the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father, and as we live as the the channels and the instruments through which You would be pleased to work so that we would draw attention to our great God and not detract from Your glory. May it be so. In Jesus' name, Amen.